Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, a show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we describe the history and stories of a trail and the area the trail is in. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we describe a trail that's on an ancient volcanic island in the Pacific Ocean. It's an island filled with lush tropical forest. And this is a coastal hike along oceanside cliffs that reaches remote beaches, streams, and waterfalls. And it culminates by reaching an ancient, isolated valley that was once inhabited by native islanders. And today, the valley may still be inhabited by a few renegades. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Kalalau Trail on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. In 2002, my wife, daughter, mother-in-law, and I went to the Hawaiian island of Kauai on vacation. At the time, our daughter was two years old. My wife, Andy, was pregnant with our son. And during that vacation, we went to the town of Hanalei on the rainy northern side of the island. We snorkeled at Ka Beach at the end of Route 560. There's a road that encircles the entire island, except for 16 miles, or about 26 kilometers, of the rugged Nepali coast that starts at Ka Beach. Along that stretch is the 11-mile, or 18-kilometer, Kalalau Trail. And during that trip, my wife and I did the traditional day hike that goes about two miles into Hanakapa'ai Beach and back. 17 years later, in 2019, our two-year-old daughter, at age 19, went back to Kauai with college friends and hiked the entire Kalalau Trail. Today, she's here to talk about it. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks. I'm excited. All right. So I'm going to start with a little bit of background to orient us. The Hawaiian archipelago is 137 islands spread over 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers. The, the southeastern part is eight main islands, and that's what most of us think of as Hawaii. So do you have any guess as to how far away Hawaii is from the United States, from the mainland? I don't know exactly, but I could show you on a map. <laughs> so it's it's about 2,000 miles off the coast of California or off the west coast of the United States, 3,200 kilometers, and it's southwest of the United States. So Hawaii is geologically in a hot spot, and it's a volcanic hotspot. And there's a couple of theories on this. One theory is that hotspots are stationary. And that means that you have essentially a volcanic spot that's stationary and the plate moves over it. There's another theory that's more recent that these plates might move a bit. But essentially what you've got is a hot volcanic spot and you've got the plate moving north and west at about 5 to 10 centimeters a year. And currently you've got the big island of Hawaii, which has an active volcano in the southeastern part of the chain. And then the older islands of Hawaii have extinct volcanoes. And Kauai is the oldest of the main inhabited islands. There were original Polynesians and then later some Tahitians that came. So you've got people who have been there, they think from possibly from 300 AD all the way up to 1100 AD. They really don't know in that range when people got to Hawaii, but they more recent analysis tends to um, lean toward it being a more recent thing. So toward the later end of that spectrum. So originally they thought people had been there longer than they now think people had been there. Do you know? So, I mean, you probably have 
learned in school at some point about Captain Cook, the first European to have learned about Hawaii. And he, he arrived in 1778, and he actually first landed at Kauai, and he met with um, inhabitants there to trade. And I think a lot of people know that he called them the Sandwich Islands, which was after his patron, the Earl of Sandwich. And he came back twice more. And in 1779, he was actually killed in Hawaii in a dispute that started over a lifeboat being stolen from one of his ships. And uh, his response to the lifeboat being stolen was to kidnap the king of the big island of Hawaii. And that didn't go over well, and he was ultimately killed by the, by the local inhabitants. And so that was the first uh, European encounter with Hawaii ended poorly. But after that period, starting in 1795, Hawaii became a kingdom. And it was actually a kingdom until 1872. But in the middle of that is when American influence started in Hawaii, and it began with sugar plantations. The first plantation was actually in 1835 and was also on Kauai. So Kauai is where the American influence also began. And then in 1898, Hawaii became a territory of the United States by President McKinley. And the goal then was Pearl Harbor. Really, the, the key for the Americans was to have a good fleet location for their naval fleet to protect the West Coast of the United States. And they saw Hawaii and its really neat um, natural harbor and Pearl Harbor as an opportunity to do that. And so that's why it became a territory. Then in 1959, um, when Eisenhower was president, it became a state. And there was a vote by the people of Hawaii and 93% voted in favor of making Hawaii a state. So that's a little background on the on the islands of Hawaii, but let's focus now on Kauai. They call it the Garden Isle. It's the second oldest of the main eight Hawaiian islands after Nihau. And isn't Nihau that little one that's off the coast of Kauai? I'm not sure about this, but I seem to remember it was a small island where not many people lived. I'm probably getting that wrong. But the point of that is that Kauai is really the main, it's the largest and main of the old part of the island chain. And it's 562 square miles or 1,456 square kilometers. And it's at the northwest part of the chain, as I mentioned. So Kauai remained relatively untouched from traders compared to other islands of Hawaii. And it actually was the only island that resisted domination by King Kamehameha in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. So it, it, it was independent. Kamehameha twice failed to conquer Kauai. But it doesn't seem to have been the people of Kauai that actually prevented the conquer. There was a storm that wrecked his troops and his boats that were coming one time. And a second time, there was an epidemic that made them sick. Maybe the fates were in favor of the people of Kauai. Eventually, the king of Kauai, Kawamuali, united forces with Kamehameha. And it did become part of the greater kingdom of Hawaii, or it did become part of the greater group of islands. Today, there's about 72,000 people that live on Kauai. And one thing I remember hearing before I first went to Kauai was that you can't make a building taller than the highest coconut tree. Uh, and I always thought that was interesting uh, because it showed the emphasis on wanting to keep Kauai somewhat in a natural state, somewhat less developed than the other Hawaiian islands like Oahu and Maui. When I looked it up, though, what I found is that the, the rules are that for a residence, it can't be higher than 30 feet. And for a commercial building, it can't be higher than 50 feet, which is about the, the height of the tallest coconut palm. 
there is one hotel, the Marriott, that is much taller than that. And apparently that was the reason for these regulations is people were very upset after they built a tall hotel. So these regulations are there to retain the character of the island. So let's talk a little bit about, before we talk about the Kalalau Trail, some of the other things you can do on Kauai. And one thing that comes to me, to mind for me is Waimea Canyon State Park. Did you visit Waimea Canyon when you were there? Yes. Okay, well, tell us about it. It was really fun. I think Mark Twain is the one who coined the term, I think, what, it's the Grand Canyon of the West or something? What's or maybe of the Pacific. Of the Pacific, yeah. Mark Twain coined the term that, yeah, Waimea Canyon is the Grand Canyon of the Pacific. And yeah, it, it really is. It even has that red rock, which is really beautiful. Did you go hiking in it? Um, we we hiked to the Overlook where you can see everything. And it was actually the first place that we had cell service while we were in that park. So that was kind of nice. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it is the largest canyon in the Pacific of I the islands. It. What's that? I believe that. Yeah, it's huge. (laughs) It's 10 miles wide. It's 3,500 feet deep. And there's 45 miles of trails there. And so when we went, when you were a little girl, we didn't hike into it either. We went to the Overlook as well. So maybe that's something I want to do someday is to really hike into that canyon. But that is, I think if you're going to go all the way to Kauai out in the Pacific Ocean to go on a hike, it's worth it to at least go see the canyon, don't you think? Yes. Okay, another thing that, I have to mention because it involves my childhood is the Waialua Falls. Did you see the Waialua Falls? Are those the falls above Hanalei? Well, it's close to Hanalei. I don't think it's above it. I think it's on the way there. It is a double waterfall. I don't specifically remember that. Okay. The reason I mention it is because there was a TV show when I was a kid called Fantasy Island. (laughs) And... The Waialua Falls was in the opening credit scene. So when they showed this beautiful tropical island, they always started the show by showing this beautiful double waterfall. And that is on Kauai as well. And it's something you can drive and get out of your car and take a quick look if it's something people want to see. But it is a, it's not super tall. It's only about 80 feet high, but it's a really neat waterfall because it's double water. It's a double waterfall where each side is just as strong as the other. So it's just a really neat um, looking waterfall. You know, that does sound familiar, but during one of our days while we were traveling up that side of the island, there was a huge storm. So there were like 50 waterfalls coming from all the cliffs. It was beautiful, but it also made it hard to distinguish which ones were always there. That's that's a good um, point about the amount of water that's on this island, right? It's they get. I think I read that the volcano at the center of the island, the extinct volcano, is it one of the rainiest spots on earth? I'm just Yeah, it's considered the wettest, I think the wettest peak in the world. Yeah, so there's a lot of water coming down on this island. Okay, so I was going to talk next about Hanalei before we get into the Nepali coast, but are there any other things that you guys went and did when you were there that were worth mentioning? Yeah, um one of my favorite spots was the hike that we did to the waterfalls that are in Jurassic Park. They're, I think they're called Hoi, Hoi Pet. Ah, okay. Hoi Pe Falls. Okay. And now where, where are those located? Those are, let's see. We were able to take a, a city bus from Kapa'a, which is where we were staying. 
And I think it took about 20 minutes to get to the street. It's just a residential street and you just walk down the residential street and then there's nothing but kind of a little space in the trees. But if you head back through those trees, it widens to a trail. And then there's like a hundred people back there cliff jumping and taking pictures and eating fruit. And it's, yeah, it's really beautiful. Cool. So you stayed in Kapa'a. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that in a minute, but I want to talk about Hanalei, which is the community that's closest to where the trail is. Mm-hmm. And what I remember is most of the hotels on the island where most tourists go are on the sunny southern side of the island called Poipu, Poipu Beach. Mm-hmm. But that's not where the Kalalau Trail is. The Kalalau Trail is near Hanalei on the northern rainy side of the island. And this was an area that was well populated in ancient times, but Hanalei today is only a few hundred residents and it's primarily agricultural. I still remember the drive down where you come down sort of from the Princeville resort area and you're driving down into the valley of Hanalei and you just see taro fields and all these really beautiful terraced um, agricultural land. So it's a, it's a pretty neat area and that's what you find closest to the trail. So, I want to talk for a few minutes about the Nepali coast itself. It's 90 minutes north of Lihui, where the airport is, which is about 41 miles or 66 kilometers. So that's the drive getting from the airport in Lihui to where the Nepali coast is. The coast itself is about 16 to 17 miles, about 26 kilometers along the north shore of the island. And as I mentioned before, there's no road. The road ends at K.A. Beach. Did you go to K.A. Beach? I remember passing it. So a really important thing to note was for this trip, we aren't old enough to have a rental car. So we were either hitchhiking or taking Ubers. Okay. Yeah. I I remember when you were young and we went to uh, Kauai and to Hanalei and K.A. Beach, the snorkeling there was fantastic. I don't know if anything about that has changed, but I do recommend that as a great place to spend some time on a beach and have some good snorkeling in a protected cove. So we've also heard that when we were passing, our Uber driver was like, check this place out. It's great for snorkeling. But there was a really recent flood, I think 2017, that washed like two whole hillsides into the ocean. Um, so you have to be a little more careful because there is some debris. Oh, interesting. So that's that's one of those things where who knows, you know, over 20 years, things can change quite a bit or 17 years. So yeah, I didn't know that. So that's, that's um, I guess it's always worth looking these things up before you go to see what's going on and what the latest is. So the Nepali coast has sharp ridges jutting out into the sea and narrow valleys. And basically, I think if you think of beaches and waterfalls and lush valleys, you've got in your mind what we're talking about for the Nepali coast, right? Yes, for the most part. But I was actually surprised sometimes when you come along the side of a ridge, there's this blank, hot orange rock and just goats. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This this area, the Nepali coast was the backdrop. As you mentioned, I think you mentioned Jurassic Park, right? Yes. So when you see, I, I think it's one of the opening scenes it's in the, the movie scene, where they yeah. show them flying in to this beautiful tropical coast. That's the Nepali coast. That's where we're talking about. And so I have an important question. Hmm. Did you see any T-Rexes? No, but I did hear animals at night that sounded like them. (laughs) Okay, so maybe they're hiding. Maybe they're just shy. Okay. (laughs) And the word Nepali itself means high cliffs, which gives you an an idea of what we're talking about. 
The coast was originally inhabited by Polynesian and later Tahitian settlers, but native Hawaiians haven't lived there since um, during the 20th century. They haven't lived there lately. Today, there's really, to get to the Nepali coast, there's a few options. One is it's accessible by sea, by raft or kayak tours, and that's just to see it, not to actually come up and land on the coast. And there's also helicopter tours that people take. But we're here to talk about the main way to see it, which is the only way that really matters, which is going on foot, right? And so a little bit on the history of the Kalalau Trail itself. This is an ancient Hawaiian footpath. So back when Hawaiians lived along this coast and in the Kalalau Valley, this is how they got there. There was no easy way to get there then either. And the valley is at the end of the path, which is 11 miles. So if you're going to do the hike, you're looking at a 22-mile round-trip hike. And so that's uh, 18 kilometers one way, 36 both ways. There was, I saw an estimate that in 1778, when Cook arrived, there may have been up to 5,000 people living along that coast and in the valley. That seems high to me. And I think I saw another estimate that was in the high hundreds. So I don't know what the real number is, but there was definitely a, a fair number of people there were definitely a fair number of people living out there, farming out there. The modern trail was built in the late 1800s, and then I guess it must have not been maintained very well because it was rebuilt in the 1930s. And it traverses five separate valleys and ends up in the Kalalau Valley. So this is, what, this is where I now want to talk about one of the most interesting things about this area. The Kalalau Valley is not completely uninhabited, is it? No, it's not. Okay, so who who lives there in 2020 as we or when you were there in 2019, who who's living in the Kalalau Valley? Almost exactly who you would imagine. It's like tall, broad white men with no shirt and wide bell-bottom pants. <laughs> <laughs> so these are basically kind of like hippie leftovers. Exactly. It's interesting to see them still out there. But they seem really happy. <laughs> did you meet some of these folks? Yes. Okay. So how did that happen? How did you meet them? Oh, my goodness. So because you're not, it's technically illegal to live out there. None of them will straight up say, I'm living here. But you can kind of figure it out by the way that they are so comfortable. And it looks like it's they, their morning routine is something they do every day all like for years. Um, I specifically remember... There's this little stand, almost like a lemonade stand, mm -hmm. and it's where if you're hiking out, um, you can leave some stuff just in case hikers coming in tend to need some gear. Like if you have a rain tarp and it's not raining when you're leaving and you think, hmm, someone in the future might need this, I'll leave it here. The next person coming in, huge rainstorm, they can use it. So basically, we were talking to these men who were camping next to us and they said, we've been seeing this guy come every morning and look through the free stuff and then just disappear. Now, we were lucky enough to actually kind of befriend this man because we were camping kind of close to that stand. And he <laughs> he was so funny. He was just so about this. It's So they call the giving spirit of the island the aloha spirit mm -hmm. and he was so about the aloha spirit he would so he would always take things from the free bin but he would always leave coconuts and mangoes for travelers that were walking in that's cool yeah i read an article in hakai magazine from february 2018 it was called hawaii's last outlaw hippies uh, it gives you an idea of kind of what the modern version of who's living out there is 
the Kalalau Valley is 80 hectares or about 200 acres of agricultural terrain. So it's a pretty good sized valley with a lot of space to grow things. And it's kind of a, the way I understand it, you can tell me better, but it's a natural amphitheater, sort of a U-shaped valley open to the ocean, but blocked off from the interior of the island otherwise. Yes. And I think that's why it's always probably been isolated, right? It doesn't really, there's no access from from the land. You really have to come along the coastal hike or from the water. Yes, definitely. And so you can grow everything you need to eat out there because of the climate. It's kind of a garden, modern sort of garden of Eden. The ancient Hawaiians planted uh, a lot of different things, but in particular taro. And more recently, in 1825, guava trees were introduced. There's also mango trees. Basically, it's been a hippie hideout since the 1960s. There are there ca- I heard there were caves out there. Are there actually caves where people are living in them? Yes. We um so a lot of what I know about the people that live out there is actually from someone that picked us up while we were hitchhiking and it was a pouring rainstorm. So we were at a different part of the island, he picked us up, and then of course, because you're in Kauai and everyone is just kinda a local who's willing to tell their story. He told us about the 20 years he spent living on the Kalalau. Basically what he told us is you can grow everything you need. And we actually discovered this was true as we were hiking into the Kalalau beach and there's tomato plants on either side of you. And while we were exploring, we found the rem- the remnants of a garden. We actually saw this huge tree with the big yellow fruit and we walked toward it to to go check it out. We were, ooh, maybe it's a mango. Turns out to be a full cacao tree. So they're really just growing everything they need out there. But the one thing he said that they needed from main civilization was milk powder for B12. Okay, interesting. It is illegal to live out there. Just I want to be clear about that. <laughs> You're not supposed to live out there, but people do. Uh, apparently during the Vietnam War, there were draft dodgers and vets and all kinds of people who just wanted to opt out of society. And a lot of them at the time apparently wanted to grow pot out there, too. And so I think that was going on during the 60s. And for decades, people lived there despite the rules against it. A few years ago, though, the state apparently launched a crackdown. And unfortunately, one of the reasons this happened is one of the people who was living out in the Kalalau Valley came out of the valley, stole a car and then hit someone head on and killed a local resident. And so people were pissed that they were kind of vagrant outlaws living out there and that it had resulted in a death of someone living on the island, a local person. And as a result, the state cracked down and they went out there and they cleaned out all the camps that are back in the valley. They found some interesting things, which I thought was kind of bizarre. They found an earthen pizza oven. So somebody had actually built a pizza oven out of like a mud pizza oven. They found a movie theater. I'm not sure what that looked like, whether that was a sheet and a projector or what, but they, they found some sort of improvised movie theater. And they also found a library, which was a tent filled with books that had a little note about the rules about taking the books and replacing them and saying that it was, in fact, a library. So there was certainly a real community out there from the people who were living out there. And then even, you know, these are people who are checked out trying to avoid mainstream society, but they sort of built up their own little version of it out there. Definitely. I actually... This man shared with us um, a full moon tradition that was a community bonding experience. Um, And it was the one night where they would all come to the Kalalau beach and fish and a jet ski would drop off their B12 and take some of their trash and they would have a big naked dance party and just celebrate life. And it sounded like they were all really close friends. (laughs) 
Well, I guess you would get close when there's not too many residents and you're all living out in this amazing spot. That makes sense. So attempts to get people out of the valley go back to all the way back to 1893. There was actually a sheriff who got killed in an incident with a native Hawaiian who they were trying to get out of the valley who ended up shooting him. So there's it hasn't always been peaceful trying to get people out of there. In 1974, the state bought the property. And in 1979, it became a, a state park. In the mid-1990s, there were 50 to 60 residents, and they called themselves, quote, the family. That's, I guess, how they referred to each other. And they had a community garden that had papaya, banana, jackfruit, chestnut, and I'm seeing a word called soursop, but I don't know what that is. Soursop. No, I read that wrong. It's soursop. So there's, I'll have to look that up, but there's a, something called soursop they were also growing there. But because of the last few years where they've cleared people out, there's less things there today, less people there, but there are still people there, as, as you found out. So why, if, if people are thinking about a backpacking trip they should do, why this one? What would be your, what would, what's your 30-second pitch on why this is the hike somebody should really do? It's strenuous, but doable. It tests your limits, but it's not dangerous. And... The end beach is maybe the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. Okay. So I, I've never been all the way out there. I've only hiked the first two miles, but I, I came up with some of these things. One is beautiful. I assume that would be the case. Another is accessible, meaning it's like you said, it's not a brutal hike and it's only 11 miles in. There is a section though that everyone should be aware of. Um, I'm sure if you do any research on the trail, you'll come across this. I know I did. It's called Crawler's Ledge. Yes, I did research that. Honestly, as someone who has experienced backpacking in the Sierra Nevadas, that's nothing. Okay, that's, you know, I watched actually some videos on that because I was curious how dangerous it was. And it did look where you have to, it did look like something where you have to be certainly paying attention. Definitely. But it didn't look like unreasonably dangerous if you know what you're doing and you're actually aware of what you're doing. We did it in backpacks and tevas, and it was fine. But yeah, you definitely take your time, just like across any like rocky ledge, you know. But it's not more dangerous than any other ledge I've ever walked across. I guess the other thing I came up with as to why you might do this hike is it's just unique. I think I don't think, at least in the United States, there's any other hike like this. No, definitely not. And one of the things I kind of came to a conclusion of while I was hiking this trail is Hawaii is not the U.S. I It's not. There are species and creatures there's, there's, that none of us on the mainland have any experience with. And as someone who studies nature, studies plants and animals, I was astounded by the diversity. And there were things I had never even thought could exist that I came face to face with on that trail. Do you have an example of something? Um, or just the vegetation, you mean? Some stuff you aren't familiar with? All, okay, so there's... Do you know what sugarcane looks like? It's yes. like big Do you remember we, when we were in Jamaica? We saw okay. sugarcane. Yeah, so, there, <laughs> so next to the trail, out of nowhere, there's like a huge patch of sugarcane on either side. And within the sugarcane are these beautiful purple orchids that are like curving oh, cool. in towards the trail. Cool. And I have never seen anything like that in my life. It was so beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about logistics now before we go into the steps along the trail. I guess most major airlines can get you to Hawaii and Kauai. I remember when we went, when you were younger, we went through Oahu and then a short flight over to Kauai. I don't know. How did you get there? 
Um, we had a connecting flight in LA and it just was LA to Lahue. Okay. So pretty much a straight shot from the West coast of the United States. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then what about accommodations? I know you stayed both in a hostel and in a campground before, before and after. So can you tell us Mm -hmm. about that? Yeah. So we stayed at the Kauai beach hostel or the Kauai beach house, which is just kind of this bungalow. It's painted blue and yellow. And of course, it's kawaii, so chickens are everywhere. <laughs> um, and I, I didn't really think about this while we were going, but the island's pretty small. So a lot of people stay their entire time just at one hostel and do day trips to everything. But that's not how we were doing it because, you know, we're backpackers. So we show up, we stay for a few nights, then we move on. Let's see. So you stayed at the hostel for a few nights. And where, mm-hmm. which town is that in? Kapa'a. Okay. And how far is that from where you were going? Where's Kapa'a on the island? So Kapa'a is about 20 minutes north of Lahue. Okay. So it's still on the eastern side of the island. But closer to Hanalei and closer to Ka. Slightly. Slightly. Not that much. So pretty close to Lihue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and you stayed there for a few days, but then Mm -hmm. you also stayed in a campground, didn't you? Yeah. So, oh goodness. So we only had... (laughs) Don't look at me like that. We only had the first few nights actually booked and planned because we were like, it's Hawaii. We've heard everyone is very friendly. Like, I'm sure we'll figure it out. So we show up and we stay at this beach house for a few days. We do a few day hikes, kind of training, prepping, making sure our gear's all intact. And then we head to Anahola Beach Resort, which is just a campground with a fancier name. And it's it's a nice campground. You can just... Uh, it's kind of like a KOA here. You just can pull up, throw your tent down, and uh, spend a few days there. It's very beautiful. Highly recommend. There's good surfing. It's a famous break called Racetracks, actually. Where Where is that on the island? Again, like maybe like, it's like right on like the corner of like the east to north. It's okay. like just a little bit um, further north than Lihue. Yeah, or so- than Kapa'a. So if you're going to be backpacking and you've got gear for camping already, great campground right there, beautiful spot. Go camping in Hawaii even before you go backpacking. Exactly. It and it, yeah, and it, it actually has showers, so it's not completely like roughing it as we were about to be. So yeah, so we stayed there, and then our plan was to stay at Hanalei Beach Park, but. <sighs> We didn't do our research, so we arrive in Hanalei, and we realize the permit office is closed, and that campground is actually still being renovated from the floods in 2017. So shoot, we have no place to stay. That also happened to be the day where a huge rainstorm hit, so the water was high enough, um, so the bridge between Hanalei and the rest of the island was closed. So we were trapped in Hanalei with no place to stay, So we were just waiting for a bus for two hours and just started drinking like beers and just chilling at the bus stop. It was fine. So then we take the bus from Hanalei and we're like, where do we go? (laughs) Um, So we end up doing, we end up getting out at a bus stop and then taking an Uber to a campground. Let me find the name of the campground. So this is near Hanalei. Yeah. On the Hanalei side of the river, I guess, of the bridge. It's again towards that northeastern. Oh, okay. So we like were able to get across the bridge on the okay. bus, but much later than we had hoped. So we were just stuck trying to, to figure out where we were going to go. 
You know, maybe I didn't write it down because it was not planned. Okay. <laughs> so you ended up staying in a different campground. Yeah. I know it starts with an A. Awani. I don't know. It's a really famous spot for snorkeling. Now, so we so we don't have a permit for this campground and we get dropped off by an Uber and it's dark already. So we're like, this is where we're staying. We have no time to assess the situation. We got to set up camp. Like we're heading off. Um, oh my gosh, wait, no, this is after the trail. Oh, you did this after? We did this after the trail. Hold on. So the night between, wow, wait, I totally forgot. So we, we ended up taking the bus from Hanalei all the way back to the hostel. Whoa, wait, I forgot. All the way back to the hostel. And we were like, they were like, weren't you going to leave this morning? And we were like, yeah, but we're back. And then the guy was like, oh, you can just throw your sleeping bag on a beach somewhere. And we were like, yeah, but you know, we'll, we'll take a bed here. We're about to be on the trail for a long time. It would be nice to have a good night's sleep before we go. So they say, oh, all the beds are booked, but we have these couches in the living room you can sleep on for $35. <laughs> what a deal. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's the thing about Hawaii. The, the places to stay that aren't camping are too expensive. But that was actually a very strange night where we were sleeping on the couches um, in like the common room of this hostel and all the staff were sleeping on the other couches with us. So... Just kind of like a slumber party, but we wake up early the next morning, take the bus again to Hanalei, and then from there, we got an Uber from a nice little breakfast restaurant in Hanalei to the trailhead, and okay. that's how we started the hike. So this is still before the hike then? That's before. The The other beach, that that was after. I, I okay, totally forgot, it, but okay. I will tell you that story in completion once we get to it. Okay. All right. So... Let's talk about the hike itself. Yes. We've said it's 11 miles or 18 kilometers each way. Mm -hmm. You got to hike both ways. You can't have a boat pick you up after you get all the way out there. No, sir. <laughs> the first two miles are in Haena State Park. And that apparently also now requires permits because there's so many people that want to hike there. I remember when your mom and I hiked it, it didn't require that. But that's a day hike. And so the first two miles, you, you can hike out um, without an overnight permit, at least. I'll be honest, at no point during my entire trip did anyone check for a permit. Yeah, that's not a surprise. But, and I think, obviously, the people who live out there aren't pulling permits to go sneak out and sneak back. So, understood. But let's, let's tell people how to do it right, at least if they want to do it right. And hey, I would rather my money go, go towards maintenance of a, of a beautiful park. You know? Exactly. So, I don't mind paying for the permit. After the first two miles is Nepali Coast State Wilderness Park. So it's actually two different state parks. The first two miles are Haena State Park and then Nepali Coast. The weather there seldom gets below 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 and a half Celsius. Although we've talked about rain is a big issue. Mosquitoes are an issue. May to October is a drier season. You went in September, I think. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually a pretty good time to go. It's still the dry season comparatively. Yeah, it, it didn't rain while we were on the trail at all. That's a good time to go then. Oh, yeah. Definitely good luck. <laughs> so you mentioned that it's a fairly safe hike, and you talked about Crawler's Ledge being something that people worry about, but to you, as an experienced backpacker, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad, no. But I do want to, I'm going to go through this because it'll be fun, and I'll scare people a little bit, but I won't. Okay. I'm not trying to scare them. Well, okay, no, I am trying to scare them, but it'll be fun <laughs> anyway. And I'm not going to... I guess what I'm saying is I'm trying to scare them, but I'm not trying to discourage them. Yeah. Okay. So there's no services or cell coverage of any kind. Mm -mm. And 
if you got hurt out there, you'd literally have to flag a boat or a helicopter to get you out of there, I think. Yeah, probably. Okay. And it is a pretty narrow trail with steep drop-offs. Yeah. Okay. And if there's a lot of rain on a particular day, it didn't happen to you, I understand. But apparently the streams can be very flooded to the point where you can't cross them. I believe that. And you do have to wait sometimes for the water levels to subside if there's a lot of water running off from the mountain. I definitely wouldn't want to do Crawler's Ledge after a rain. And it's it's a dangerous ocean there too, right? This is not like calm beaches where you can go swimming all you want. No. So yeah, the beach at the end is notorious for killing people. When we were there, people were actually just swimming and it was very calm. But the reason is it's just the ocean. There's no... Like you're the land is the small part. The ocean is the is the large other part. So the ocean has a lot more power than the land does, and it can just rip you off. Yeah. Next stop, Japan. If you get in a rip current, pretty much. Okay. If you wanted to climb on rocks or do mountain climbing and things like that around these areas, it's pretty hard. At my understanding, from the rock, is pretty crumbly, pretty falls apart, volcanic kind of rock that may be hard to actually hold on to. So probably not a good idea to be climbing on things that aren't part of trails or uh, aren't where you're supposed to be climbing. Also a lot of falling rocks, I understand. Yeah. There's a lot of landslide signs and falling rock signs. It just, when you camp, don't camp under a cliff. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) There's also, you know, you're out in the Pacific. If there's a, if there's an earthquake thousand miles away, there could be a tsunami that comes in. That can always happen. That's true. Pretty rare event, but it could happen. And I've also heard that you mentioned goats. Yes. In August and September on the weekends, goat hunting is allowed. So you got to make sure the locals don't think you are a goat that time of year. Well, lucky for me, I don't look like a goat. Um, <laughs> there's also a lot of wild boars out there. So yeah. some people do boar hunting as well. Um, one of our Uber drivers earlier in the trip had talked about his experience with the Nepali coast, and it was primarily for hunting. Um, but he said, you know, those people out there, they're crazy. <laughs> I, I rem- it's funny that you mentioned the boar hunting, because when I looked it up, I learned about the goat hunting. But I, I remember boar hunting when your mom and I did even that short hike into the first beach. We m- came across a couple of guys and we asked and they were hunting. They had bows. They were bow hunting and they said they were hunting for boar. So that is something that happens out there as well. All right. So then here's some accolades on the danger. 2008 Backpacker Magazine named it one of the 10 most dangerous hikes in the U.S. Outside Magazine named it one of the 20 most dangerous hikes in the world. All right, so hit some examples of incidents. In 2012, a 30-year-old woman fell and died near the waterfall near the Kalalau campsite. I'm not sure how that happened. You're looking at me like that would have been hard to do. <laughs> That's really hard to do. I'm confused. I don't but know. Where maybe she, she climbed about. up somewhere where she shouldn't have. That would make sense. Even even that, it's it didn't... Yeah, maybe. In 2013, a woman died trying to cross a flooded stream. Mm. In 2014, a hiker fell 50 feet, or about 15 meters, off the trail at mile 7, which is near Crawler's Ledge, and died. And more than 100 people have died on the, swimming in the beaches along the Nepali coast. I would not recommend going for a swim. Okay, so... <laughs> But all of these things are things you can deal with if you act smartly, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I'm just glad you did this research after I did the trail. I was 19 at the time. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I, when I was doing the research, I was wondering how I let my daughter go with her friends. Hey, we had a good time and we're experienced backpackers. There's nothing to worry about. 
it, and we haven't mentioned this yet, but you, we've talked about, you keep saying we, but it was you and was it three other of your college roommates? Yeah. So it was my roommate, Anna, and my roommate, Blair. Blair is a man, just uh-huh. so everyone knows. Um, and Savannah, my other friend. And Savannah and Blair had actually either never been backpacking or been once a long time ago. So Anna and I, who are both very experienced backpackers, did most of the planning and most of the the gear recommendations for them. Well, that's a good segue. What is the gear you need for a trip like this? Just stuff that would be different from what's obvious. Like what's rain gear. (laughs) Okay, rain gear. You need rain gear. Bring more food than you think you'll need just because I mean so here's the thing about the Kalalau. It says, oh, it's a ridge trail. So a lot of people picture like a ridge that's kind of flat, but high up and maybe like getting up to the ridge is kind of steep. No, basically you're weaving in and out of these valleys and the valleys aren't flat. They're up and down. So you're, you're doing a lot of up and down all day. It's a very strenuous hike, but definitely doable. So you're, by the time you finish your day, you're hungry for a meal. Okay. That's good advice. And I guess a pretty lightweight tent, a light sleeping bag because it's not cold. Oh yeah, don't don't bring heavy warm gear. You're not going to need it. You do need mosquito repellent, I would assume. Definitely. Probably a head net would be a good idea in case it's bad. Mhm. And water purification or filtering? Yes. Okay. And like you said you hiked in Tevas, right? You- yeah, I hiked it in Tevas and it was actually nicer because I was able to cross the water without having to stop. Okay, so light, shoes. lightweight shoes or even hiking sandals. Yeah. What about navigation? I mean, it's just along a cliff. Do you need a map or is there some local one they give you? Yeah, so we had, I had the AAA um, Kauai map and it, it had the road and the trail on it. So it was just more of a, a an emergency measure because we didn't end up needing it all, at all. I will say um, at a certain point, you know, everyone hikes their own hike. There's a little bit of space between all of us. You know, we're just going at our own pace. There were, I think, two to three times where I had been hiking and hiking and hiking, and I look up, and I realized I was off the trail and accidentally on a trail to someone's home in the in back in the valley. <laughs> so you have to be conscious of once you understand the rhythm of the trail, it's weaving in and out of the valleys. It doesn't go too deep. And then it comes around the side. Once you understand that it's easier to keep track of the trail, but those first few valleys, I was heading back towards someone's little pad in the, in the jungle. And there are a couple of places where you can head back on hikes to waterfalls, aren't there? Yes. So there's one by the, the like mid mid spot camp Dang, I forget the name of we'll it. We'll get to that. I have it here somewhere. Okay. So there's, the funny thing is, is there's a sign that says, oh, it's like a mile away. In the guidebooks I was reading, it says, oh, it's a mile away. It was about like a three minute walk from the campground. The the, the waterfall. waterfall that they say you can walk to and swim in. We just like did our little afternoon rinse there because it was so close to our campground. So I'm not sure why it's marked as something that's farther away. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's waterfalls around. So you do have to have a permit to camp out there, as we've talked about. Although, as we've also mentioned, some of the people who are kind of renegades out there don't use them. But uh, you do have to have a permit. Otherwise, as I mentioned before, you can hike in two miles or about 3.2 kilometers to the first beach and back. It's $20 per person per day. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds right. 
And they only allow apparently 60 people at a time. I don't know if that means per day or total, but there is there are limits on the number of people that, that can be out there. You do have you can reserve up to 90 days in advance and the permits do run out if you don't do it, right? Yes. So, I definitely recommend if you know you want to go, get the permit before you get the airplane ticket. Okay. And you get them from an online reservation system from the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources. Mm-hmm. And there's two places you can camp. There's Kalalau at the end of the trail and Hanakoa. Oh my goodness, Hanakoa can... Ugh. Wait, wait, you, you said, let's before we get to that, was it hard to get a permit? Or if you actually plan the 90 days out, you can do it pretty easily for the days you want? It was pretty easy, especially because the the trail had been closed for maintenance up until, I think, September. So people didn't really... People who would typically be planning to do that trail probably weren't planning to do it that year because of the maintenance. Okay. Yeah. So let's go through a basic itinerary of the trip. Mm-hmm. So you start at KA Beach at the end of the road. Mm-hmm. You hike in the first two miles to get to Hanakapi'ai Valley, mm-hmm. which is where that first beach is. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of Hyena State Park. Again, you don't want to swim on this beach. It's there apparently regular drownings, serious rip currents. There is a bathroom there, I'm told. I don't remember that, but there must have been. Yeah. So it's actually on the, the side where you're going, where you're continuing the Kalalau Trail. It's okay. just kind of like an outhouse pit toilet kind of deal. I did see people snorkeling at the beach while I was there. I think they had a guide though. So Okay. And that's about a three to four hour round trip if you were just day hiking out to there. And there's also a two mile trail an unmaintained trail up to a waterfall from that beach mm. we your mom and i didn't do that because it's a pretty serious hike even though it's only a couple of miles it's it's a basically rock scrambling as i understand it yeah did you guys do that one no we didn't okay. do that one we considered it but then we were like you know what let's get away from all these people yeah and that would turn a half day day hike into a full day i mean yeah. that, that would be a lot of extra work but who knows if you have the time it might be worth it mm. Then it's four more miles to get to the first campsite, which is Hanakoa. And Hanakoa, yeah. as I understand it, is a hanging valley, meaning it does not have access to the beach. It's up above no, the beach. No, it's, it's deep in the, in the forest. It's Okay. Yeah, you can barely see the sunlight. And there's a, a stream there, and the stream just goes over the cliff. Again, it doesn't work its way down to the beach, I think. No, but I wouldn't call it a stream. It's definitely thicker okay. and faster and... Unfortunately, the bathrooms are on the other side <laughs> from where you camp. So if you really got to go, that is a tough break. <laughs> and there, as you mentioned, there's a waterfall there that's a short hike from the campground area. Yeah. And you, I guess you told me before we uh, recorded this that you weren't, you did not like this campsite. No. What it was the was issue? Awful. Oh, goodness. So first of all, there's two little like rain shelters. So everyone who's camping there is crowded underneath there. We actually met some very friendly people and cooked and ate dinner with them. But if there were more people at that site, I don't think it would have worked. And goodness. So the mosquitoes were awful, awful at this spot. My friend Anna slept in her hammock and she woke up covered in like just gnarly bites, like her whole legs it was, it was, whew. yeah, that was, I don't think a lot of us slept that much that night because, well, as someone who backpacks a lot, I know while you're hiking, <laughs> while you're hiking during the day, it's a good idea 
to listen to the sounds around you so you know what to expect at night. Because I know like that can be kind of scary if you aren't paying attention and you hear all these sounds. But if you've been listening all day, you're like, oh, that's that bird that I saw. Or, oh, that's what it sounds like when a guava hits the ground. But to someone who wasn't listening, it might sound like footsteps. (laughs) So people were a little unsettled throughout that first night. Yes, but we we were able to make it work and get going the next day. And actually, as much as I'm hating on this campsite, so because we were backpacking but had also planned to travel before and after, we had extra gear with us that we were like, we don't want to carry this all the way out to Kalalau Beach, especially on Kalalau's Ledge. Did you stow it there? Yeah, we just set up one of our hammocks and threw all the stuff we didn't need into the hammock and just closed it, and it was there when we got back. So as much as I did not like the campsite, it was a secure place to leave some belongings, and people were very respectful. Cool. So after that campsite, my understanding, that's where you get to Crawler's Ledge pretty soon after. It goes uphill, apparently. Yes. And I think that's actually why, because if it's raining, you you don't want to do Crawler's Ledge, so that way you have a spot to stay for the, the time you're waiting to do that part of the trail. Okay. And so then Crawler's Ledge is at about mile seven. As we mentioned, yes. that's just a very narrow part of the trail. It looks like volcanic rock from the pictures I've seen. I can actually show you one of my pictures if right, you'd well, like to see it. Pictures don't look great on on podcasts. podcasts. <laughs> well, I can send you some if you okay. want to put them up. But yeah, it's like black volcanic rock and it goes straight up. It goes straight up and then straight down. And the the ocean below you is like just this turquoise, beautiful. And the rock is black. And there's actually have you heard of a, a sunrise shell? No. It's um, you know, Shell the gas station? Yes. It's that shell, but it actually has a lot of significance in Hawaiian culture, and they're like $200 if you find one. Huh. Um, but in that crawler's ledge, there's like a little hole in the wall where someone had actually put a sunrise shell. So it's Is that just, supposed to be a good luck omen for I people I think hiking? it's supposed to be good luck. I think it's supposed to remind you of how incredible all of, all of this is. It was definitely a very special moment of the trail. Cool. Yeah. And so then at the, from mile seven to 11, there's no campsites, uh, actually from six to 11. And when you get to mile 11, you're at Kalalau and you cross a stream to get there. Again, I wouldn't call it a stream. More it's like a river. Thick, <laughs> it's rushing. And there's actually signs next to it now. I don't know if the government knows about this, but there's signs that say, please, if you're wearing sunscreen, like wipe it off before you go through. If you have bug spray, wipe it off because this is the water source for the people that live back there. Oh, okay. So while you're crossing, you have to be very conscious to not pollute the water. And I've been, I saw somewhere that you could actually camp in the caves in the summer. There's some caves near the beach. Mm. I don't know if that's something you guys saw, but apparently during the winter, they're, they're, the water gets up too high. But in the summer, there's actually places you can camp. But basically, you camp behind the beach. Is that where are the campsites at Kalalau? Yeah. So so we did see the caves. But um, so you walk in uh, to the Kalalau and there's like a big jumble of rocks and then it turns into a beach and it's just this long stretch of beach and then this huge open space of water. And you can actually see off the coast, the tiny little island where only Hawaiians are allowed to live. Oh, maybe that's the one I was talking about earlier. I don't know the name of it, but yeah, you can see it from there. Um, it's actually, it's kind of comforting. It's just like off in the distance. Um, so you're walking up and to your left, there's, 
I would guess I would call it, I would call it a forest and it's a forest of Java berry. I think I learned when I got back cause I looked it up. Um, now I, I've looked at one of the things I saw that grows there is Java plum. Do you think that's what it would be? Yeah. I think some of the locals call it just Java berry, Okay, but yeah, that sounds like the same thing and you can camp under there, but it's kind of farther from the beach. So here's, so again, here's something uh, that not everyone may know is, so that's like the section that they've basically decided is camping. There was only one group camping there and everyone else was camping closer to the beach in a nicer spot. Okay. Um, and also farther from the cliffs, but there's also like the tsunami warning signs. So it's like you choose <laughs> cliff or tsunami. I don't know. On well, the cliffs, they say not to camp under because rocks are falling all the time. Yeah, I know. But so you're either choosing to be closer to the cliffs or closer to the water and both have okay. hazards. So we just chose a spot closer to the water that was like as soon as we woke up in the morning, we could see the ocean and it was, it was beautiful. And while you were there, did you guys hike back into the valley? I've heard that there's a trail that goes a couple miles back into the Kalalau. Yes. Now, with <clears throat> so a lot of people that live in the Kalalau live back, back through that trail. And it's, it's like a fruit haven. So when you first start, there's guava, you get a little deeper, there's passion fruit, or I think... Is passion fruit maracuya, I think? Yeah, I think so. And it okay. grows on like a vine, not really a tree. Uh, I remember. No, it's a tree. Uh, maybe it's something slightly different then. I don't know. Mm, but they're so tasty. And you can just pick them up off the ground, pick them from the trees. You just eat them. They're del- Oh my God. I've never been so gorged on fruit. But you go further back and there's bananas and coconuts. And people come back from hiking that trail just with armfuls of fruit. And <laughs> everyone just chows down. So that day we had just hiked. So the day before we had gotten to the beach, so we were all feeling really tired. Um, So we decided to take kind of a break day. So we did this hike back into the valley, but only a few miles. It's very confusing. The signs with the arrows are arranged so you can't see one from the other. So you like see one, you walk a little bit and kind of to look around. Oh, maybe that's an arrow. And you walk towards it. No, I don't know without it. So you, you really have to be conscious of where you're going because we actually ended up going off the trail, but we still had a good time. We actually found a trail that was made by someone who used to live there through this crazy like sludge marshland with huge bamboo it was like a beautiful bamboo marshland um so we were going through this and like whoa what is all this what is all this i remember seeing like a strange mushroom then you get to the swimming holes and these Uh are these holes that come back from the the top of the valley and i think a like um, become that stream that you cross when you're heading into the campground. And yeah, there's just pools and pools and crawdads and the rock paintings. And I saw this incredible spider that I have never seen anything <laughs> like. It had like gold foil on it. It was, it was very beautiful. Um, and we just spent the day chilling, swimming, eating whatever fruit we could find. That sounds great. It was. <laughs> Did you find, did you see any of the stonework or terracing that was built from the original native Hawaiians? I mean, my understanding is that valley, there's sort of agricultural terraces where they originally had taro growing. And so I don't know if you saw any evidence of structures or or stuff that people had built. 
definitely evidence of structures. A few of the times where, you, where I made a f- few weird turns on the trail, we would come to these like foundations of what used to be buildings, I think, or I do remember some terracing and being like, I wonder why that's there. <laughs> so that makes sense that they would be growing taro, yeah. yeah. According to what I looked up, it looks like up until about 1920, the native Hawaiians were still using those taro fields that they had built as terraces out there. Mm-hmm. So you guys stayed two nights at Kalalau uh, Beach at the end of the trail, right? Mm-hmm. And then after that, you hiked out all in one day. We did. It was because we hadn't, we had brought enough food, but not like enough where we were like, we can make it a full day morning and lunch the next day, like hike all the way out. And we were like, you know what? We've had a beautiful time here. It's, it feels like it's right to start heading out. So we hiked all the way out the next day and wow, we were exhausted and we got back to the, the beginning at about five thirty. Now the issue is there's no service. We don't have a car, so we got a hitchhike. And the gates close at 6 p.m. And the bridge that allows you access to the rest of the island closes at 7 p.m. So we're standing there like, we either have to hitchhike or camp here in the parking lot. Uh-oh. <laughs> and luckily, Anna had made friends with this cute older couple as she was hiking. And they saw us waiting for a ride. And they offered to take us in the back of their pickup truck just to the to the town, Hanalei. Yeah, that really saved our butts. <laughs> nice. Okay. Anything else about the trail itself? And if and if we're done with it, if you have anything else, it'd be great to talk about it. But if not, then I want to go on to some questions on a completely different topic. Well, I think the most important part of the trail, the part that I found the most satisfying is everyone's nude. <laughs> That's I, what I've heard. I was topless for two to three days. I felt so free, no judgment. No one was creepy. I was just able to hang out and do my normal life, but without the restriction of clothing and like hiking barefoot, just, you know, just really being able to commune with nature in a way that's not always acceptable or possible if the weather doesn't allow it. That's cool. All right. So now I'm going to switch gears, Sonia. I'm going to ask you some personal, but still backpacking related questions. Okay. And so you grew up backpacking. I took you backpacking for the first time when you were three years old. And then I took your brother a few years later when he was three years old. And we've been backpacking and trekking ever since. What do you, what is that? I guess it's hard to know what an alternative universe would have looked like for you. But how do you think about that experience growing up compared to other people, maybe who, you know, who didn't have that kind of an experience? I mean, what does that mean to you in your life? What I have noticed comparatively to my peers is I have always been more self-sufficient and that is something I value a lot, especially as a young woman in a society that doesn't always believe in young women. So it's good to know, you know what? No, I can live on my own in the woods and survive. (laughs) It's definitely, it's good for confidence and it's good for the soul, you know, and just being out there. And it's actually led me to discover what I want to do with my career and my education. So definitely a good, good piece of my life. Cool. What do you, are there particular things you remember most fondly about all the times we went out, whether it was car camping or backpacking or just anything we did in the wilderness or day hiking when you were young that really stick out for you? 
I mean, I've always loved swimming. I was on swim team for a really long time. So for me, the parts of my life that I really remember are the the times we were able to swim in a lake as a family or swim in a river. I remember once I, I jumped off a bridge in Tahoe and did a stream and it was really fun just with my friends. And <laughs> those are the parts that stick with me. Also the nudity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just being able to swim naked. That's funny. That you The first thing that came into my mind when you said that was when we were, we did a hike from Canada back into the U.S. <laughs> we hiked nine miles along. It's from Waterton Lakes National Park back into Glacier National Park. And we got to one section and we hadn't seen anyone in hours. And we decided we're going to go skinny dipping. So we all take off our clothes, except your mother, who didn't want to go in with us at the time. And she was taking pictures of us because it was funny. And then you and your brother and I all ran into the water naked. And of course, it was that moment when somebody came walking by. I remember that too. We were just like, what's up and continued. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now I have to turn that question around. Was there ever a moment where you wondered what in the world are my parents doing dragging me out here? Huh? Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. But those are not really the moments that stick with me really. Okay. And you know what I always say, or I think your brother said is those moments may be hard at the time, but they're often ones that you remember fondly because they're usually an interesting experience. Like the time we got clobbered by a storm at Thousand Island Lake, which I mentioned to your oh, brother yeah. as well. Um, what advice would you give to parents with young kids who are thinking of taking them backpacking or trekking? And I, let me preface that by saying a lot of people who I talk to think it's, I don't know if they think it's crazy, but they think it's, I'm taking on a lot to have taken, or we had taken on a lot to have taken you guys out backpacking when you were so young. But uh, is there anything you would say to people who are worried about doing that? I mean, it's the same advice I would give to anyone. Just be prepared. If you know your kid can get cranky around four, bring a snack for around four. <laughs> yeah. If you know that they will not keep walking if they get tired unless there are jelly beans on the table, maybe bring some jelly beans. You know, you got to work with the person that you're hiking with, no matter who they are. That is good advice. Okay, and now I'm going to switch from your experience growing up hiking to um, what I'm going to call sort of my standard questions I've been asking each guest because it gives me some really interesting insights about people's experiences backpacking and hiking. Mm -hmm. What is one piece of gear you don't leave home without or everyone should consider bringing when they go on a, a multi-day hiking trip? I came up with this motto, don't make fun of me. <laughs> so when I'm packing for a trip, I usually... When I'm packing my shoes, I always say, I never leave without my Tiva. <laughs> <laughs> you like to have your Tivas. I like to have my Tivas because even if they're not the only shoe I'm wearing, they're a great camp shoe to bring along because they're light and they're comfortable. So a good camp sandal is a good thing to have. Definitely. You get to take off your sweaty, dirty shoes at the end of a hard day hiking and put on some clean sandals with uh, air your feet out. It makes a difference. It really does. Okay. That's, that's good. What about, what's the best backpacking, trekking, camping, or wilderness travel advice you've ever gotten? What's something that you, somebody said or you learned that really stuck with you about something you should always be thinking about? Listen to the locals and your fellow travelers. If, if you have plans for a day that you read about online, but someone's like, you got to check this out, like, you cannot miss this, what are you doing? Listen to them. They're the ones that would know, right? So... Definitely don't feel like you have to stick to your plans if something something better comes along. I completely agree with that. And that's happened to me a lot of times where people have said, oh, you got it happens in general traveling too, not just wilderness, right? Like if you're traveling, you know, when you went to Italy or when you're traveling in other places and somebody says, you really got to go see this. 
you should go see it, whatever oh, it yeah. is. No matter what. Honestly, especially if it has to do with food. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's the most unexpected or unusual thing that's happened to you when you were backpacking or trekking? Any sort of crazy experience that you never would have thought would have happened or surprise? I feel like I always surprise myself. I feel like, you know, like whenever I do the planning, you know, I'm in planning mode and then I actually get there. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm so glad I did this. <laughs> I was looking forward to this, but because I was in that planning stage for so long, like that's just, I felt like the, the stress and pressure, but as soon as I'm there, it all goes away. And I think I'm surprised every time by the fact that I'm just able to appreciate the moment. And maybe I shouldn't be, but just as someone who's a, a stressor and a worrier, I always forget that I do have that side of myself where I can just sit and enjoy a beautiful view with my best friends, you know? That's great. So, and and it's interesting to hear you say that because I'm obviously the same way and I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry you inherited that from me. But hey. But but also part of what that's it's great about that is we are good planners and and I have the same experience happen a lot where I really stress about planning a trip and then I'm always sometimes surprised not always but most of the time surprised at how well it comes together and how wonderful it can be and how and how you can leave those worries behind exactly, exactly once you're out there and but it does take good planning to do that and not everybody does that you hear about miserable trips people have and you think. Why would you have done it that way? But a lot of people just don't think through the planning. And hey, that's part part of what this show is about, to help people get an idea about how to do these trips. What's What about the dumbest thing you've ever done backpacking or trekking? Oh, God. And the, if you don't have anything, that's okay. No, I definitely do. Oh, goodness. It was, oh, it was on, actually, this trip. So I woke up on a beach. Incredible. It was sunrise. I don't know how early, but one of the most beautiful sunrises I think I've ever seen just coming up over the ocean on this beach. So I roll out of my sleeping bag, just take a peek. And then I roll back inside and I'm like, you know what? It's time to go back to bed. So I rub my eyes and scratch my cornea with some sand. That not only made me feel like an idiot, but also burned in ocean water for the next like three days. Yeah. Little things like that can make something hard. That's yeah. Just yeah. be cleanly. You know, hygiene can really help. <laughs> what about the opposite? Something really resourceful that you were able to do on a trip that you came up with? Also on this trip, okay. I, had a, I had a lot of time. I had a lot of freedom on this uh, backpacking trip. So the most resourceful, we had actually been to Ecuador earlier that summer. And in Ecuador, I noticed a lot of the women, instead of wearing backpacks, they use scarves um, and they kind of tie the ends in front of them and then have the most of the fabric in the back and use that as a backpack. So while we were on this trail, I was actually able to do that with my microfiber towel. Mm-hmm. And anytime we'd find cool fruit or maybe I don't know, something interesting, we just throw it in my little my little scarf backpack, towel backpack, and just bring it along. And it worked for every day hike we did. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was fun. What's one hike you've done that others should not miss? Of all the ones you've done. All of them. I mean, this could be this one, but if you have another one, we've talked a lot about this one, so maybe there's something else. Honestly, there's nothing like the waterfall at the end of the Kalalau. Okay. It's, it's set up to be a shower. So you've been hiking 11 miles, you're disgusting, you're sweaty. You show up, you strip nude and just shower in the waterfall with a view of the beach. 
That sounds pretty good. Uh, there's nothing like it. All right. Everyone should experience that. <laughs> Everyone should, if you can. What? Okay, so what's the next trail on your list or the hike you most want to do? Ooh. I want to do a longer one, either John Muir Trail or Tahoe Rim Trail. I don't know. I've been talking to some friends, and I think a few of us are interested. So we'll cool. see what happens. I highly recommend both of those. <laughs> okay. Sonia, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I hope we've inspired you to hike the Kalalau Trail. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense, and when you get back, tell me how it went. For any feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, email me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we go to the Mojave Desert in Southern California. It's an otherworldly setting with tall, almost human-looking yucca plants and piles of massive granite boulders that look like they were placed there by giants. It's a high desert that can be freezing in winter and have searing heat in summer. This is not your typical backpacking trip. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the California Riding and Hiking Trail in Joshua Tree National Park. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.